Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. Joshua Canali. Dr. Canali is an instructor of history at Jefferson Community College in Watertown, New York, and was a member of the 2015-2016 Class of Research Fellows at the Washington Library. He discusses his dissertation topic, American Dictators, Committees for Public Safety During the American Revolution, 1775 to 1784. You'll hear more about the methods these committees used to put down dissent and how local communities felt towards these organizations. And now, Drs. Canali and Bradburn. Welcome back. This is Doug Bradburn, the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. Here we are at Conversations at the Washington Library, and I've got a very special guest today who's been a fellow here for the last month. That is Professor Josh Canale. Welcome, Josh. Hi, Doug. Happy to be here. Very happy. So Josh and I know each other well because he uh, was a graduate student at Binghamton University, where I had the great honor and pleasure to uh, serve as a professor, and uh, he was one of my early graduate students there. Yeah, no, I have a lot of fond memories um, coming up from right out of undergrad and having those kind of formula, formulative excuse me, years as a grad student. We had a great community, professors and grad students included, you know, a lot of friends that I, I still keep in contact today. It was a great time. Saying um, nice things about me will <laughs> always be the right answer to the question. Jeff. I learned that seven years ago. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. What's the right answer? Whatever you say. Yeah, that's good. Now, that's how you get um, the seminars. I remember you coming there. I, I think I met your father as well because mm-hmm. uh, you're from upstate New York, yep. and you had uh, done your undergraduate work at Lemoyne College. Lemoyne College in Syracuse, yes. And uh, you're, you're one of the first people in your family to go on for higher degrees. Um, yeah, my immediate family, the only one uh, for master's and higher. Um, well, first one, uh, my brother afterwards got a master's, but... Um, Slacker. Yeah, and he's older, too. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> so when he hears no this... No rivalry. Uh, you know, yeah, no sure. rivalry. But yeah, um, I think we have, you know, maybe an extended family, a couple people that went for higher degrees beyond um, BAs and BSs. But uh, yeah, first one, so it was a very proud moment for my family. Yeah, so yeah. W- why history? What made you think, uh, you know what, what the heck, I'm going to go for the big... Uh, the big kahuna here, get a doctorate in history. Uh, well, I mean, I don't want to speak for other PhDs in history, but I'm guessing we're all... I don't want somewhat... you to speak for other PhDs. No, but I'm saying we're, we're probably yeah. all somewhat nerds from a young age, yeah. probably, that we yeah. loved history. I mean, everyone's probably got something similar. Um, and yeah. I used to take out biographies from the my elementary school library on different presidents, and that was like my thing. Um, really? From maybe like second or third grade on, I did, and it was mostly all like the pre-Lincoln ones, that's the only ones I was interested in, so Washington to Lincoln, I would read um, the, you know, the kid biography levels, and all my book reports were on biographies of the presidents. Really? Yeah, and my favorite book to read was this, um, 
encyclopedia of the presidents in their time. So it was a little bit about the president and then, you know, major events and cultural, social events. And uh, I just loved that I, from a really young age. Yeah. My teacher used to harass me because she would be like, read something fiction, you know, yeah. <laughs> something that has a beginning, middle and end, you know, <laughs> stop reading these same things that kind of uh, don't end. And I mean, I, so I loved history from a young age and I kind of... Well, it is interesting mm -hmm. about history is that uh, you can you can continue to read in the same era endlessly yeah. and never and never, never read reach all. the end of the stories that can be can be told. So it does appeal to a certain uh, a certain attitude. Yeah, I think so. I think absolutely, and I just took to it at a young age. I remember when I was in third grade, I had to do a report. We, everybody in the class had to pick the names out of a hat of the presidents, and they had to do a public like a report, like a, you know, right. speaking in front of the class. And the president I got was James Buchanan. Oh, terrible! That's the worst terrible. Awesome thing you can get when you're in third, fourth grade, or whenever. You I was. chose poorly. Yeah, I, I chose what I got. And uh, the the one advantage to it, I would say, is that uh, you can say everything that needs to be said about James Buchanan in a five minute report. If you got you know like a Washington or an FDR. You know, and you had five minutes to give it. What do you, you know? So you can be grateful then, in some ways, that you got Buchanan. It was a simple well, report. I knew Buchanan backwards and forwards. <laughs> Good. Then I'll, I'll look okay. forward to so hearing the, that report. So the Josh Canelli I knew at Binghamton University, when he's a, a young graduate student coming in there trying to find his way, was not a graduate student interested in presidential history. Not at all. Yeah. yeah. No. Talk about your interest uh, when you started grad school and how it evolved over time. Well, for a while, I actually I kind of moved away from history. I had a guidance counselor in high school that. Um, I was interested in history and archaeology, and she said, like, they don't make a lot of money. You don't want to do that. So I've kind of moved away from history for a number of well, years. Well, when I think of Josh Gennady, I think, man, looking for the, for the easy money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> that's my life goal. It's been a result. Well, you chose for me. <laughs> exactly. No one told me that until it was too late. <laughs> well, your guidance counselor told you early on, it sounds like. Well, she did, but, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, yeah. Yeah, you don't take guidance particularly I don't take guidance particularly well. Yeah. Um, but uh, so when I was at Lemoyne, uh, I finally was like, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to I'm going to switch. I had a lot of great professors um, who had steered me in a direction. Anyone you want to name? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, from, you know, mentors to professors. I mean, uh, Professor Bruce Erickson, uh, Holly Ryan, mm -hmm. uh, Doug yeah. Edgerton. I mean, these guys were great. I mean, it's a great department, mm -hmm. um, to say the least. Um, I could keep going on and on. But um they kind of reawakened the spirit. I was like, I'll take a couple of electives. Yeah. And I was actually undecided until the last possible day that you had to make a decision in sophomore year. Hmm. Um, and I had taken a few history electives for free electives and um, you know humanities credits. Um, and then finally, I was like, I'm going to abandon this idea of a business degree and I'm going to go full steam into mm -hmm. history. And there's in those classes, I mean, a liberal arts Jesuit school that um, a lot of the classes were geared towards asking the questions that I wanted those types of answers. I wanted to see seek out those types of answers. Why am I so angry? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it was just like, <laughs> you know, it was opening a whole new world of why I was so angry. <laughs> well, good. Because so, I remember when you came to Binghamton University, yeah. you wanted to work on, um, you know, kind of Al Young style history, yeah. history from the bottom up, mm -hmm. uh, the history of, uh, of uh, the losers. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the exploited. 
try to understand uh, their, their stories. I uh, had just finished reading. I remember the day very well when I came as a senior spring semester, 2007, uh, to meet you. And I had just finished reading Unknown Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. you had told me, like, you should read Shoemaker and the Tea Party that day. And that was before I even decided to come. I was still at Lemoyne and I was still uh-huh. applying places. And you had given me that advice after we talked for a few minutes. Um, about my senior thesis and everything. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that was, by that point, I mean, I had a whole new world opened up. And I think to, you, you know. got funding in your first year as I well. I did, yeah. Which is a crucial thing when you're a graduate student, of course, is getting funding because otherwise don't do it. Yeah, I can't stress that enough. That's, okay. that. anyone that asks me, you know, undergrads, these, uh, we have, you know, the undergraduate f- leadership fellows here now, mm-hmm. and I've had a couple of them ask me about graduate school. Mm-hmm. Get Go someplace <laughs> where you have funding. I mean, it's just, it's, yeah. uh, it's mandatory. So tell, tell. Uh, let's talk about your dissertation. So okay. the work that you did. What is the history? What is the story that you ultimately uh, wanted to tell? Okay. So the title is American Dictators. So is the dissertation American Dictators Committees for Public Safety, 1775 to 1782, mm-hmm. um, and the story is, um, I think, uh, one that's overlooked in the sense of it's about the process of the revolution. How does, mm-hmm. how do we move from colonies to um, winning a war, basically. I mean, I don't go into the too far into the state period uh, other than the war years. Um, but it's about, you know, when the British governments collapse and before there is American states ra- um, that are governing um, these states in open rebellion, you know, what's the process? How does that work? How does it look on the ground level? Um, and it's a messy process that I think a lot of people... Um, forget about how messy it is. So don't we know about the committees of safety? I mean, don't we know that they were really important? I mean, what is the, what, what's the added value of the work you did there? Um, so historians mention it usually anecdotally, um, you know, a reference here, a reference there, but there's no real narrative of their existence, what they were able to do um, at the scale that I, that I chose. And I'm looking only at three states um, for the interest of time, but it's very similar. New Jersey, New York, and Virginia have a similar trajectory. Um, so what's unique about it uh, is it's um, an incredibly coercive institution uh, in a systematic way. American dictators. American dictators in a Roman, in, yeah, in a Roman uh, Roman Republic sense, not a not a 20th or 21st century. Oh, well, help me out. So, what is the difference between a, a 21st century notion of a dictator and a Roman Republican dictator? Well, I think you know, to be inflammatory, it catches people's eyes. The, the, the title, so I use that title purposely, and then in the introduction, I talk about you know, get away from this 20th and 21st, and the Hitlers and the Mussolinis, the Stalins, um, the Maos, those types of people. Move away from there, um, and towards an idea of emergency short-term power, because that's what Roman. I mean, I'm no expert in antiquity, um, but you would have shocked me. Charles. Yeah, toga you're wearing looks great on you. Uh, it, it, it came with the fellows' uh, <laughs> package. <laughs> we show up to work with them. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, so I yeah. mean, it's so emergency short term. It's a tool that the Roman Republic would use in times yeah. of uh, a crisis. Yeah, uh, power over military and civil um, issues. That's non- Cincinnatus was famously addicted. I was just going to mention that, yeah. yeah but he's short term emergency as well. Right. He Two picks weeks. up, yeah, he picks up all of this power and then he returns. lets it go, returns it. Yeah. And these committees, I mean, for the most part, they do return it as well. They have a lot of power mm-hmm. in a short term, month to month, sometimes a year. Um, All right, so service. help us through. Tell me the story of one of the committees of safety. Sort of where do they come from and 
What do they do and then where do they go? Okay, so we have um, New York's Committee of Safety is a perfect example. They start in 1775 um, and in New York, originally they're based in New York City um, before obviously the British repel them, uh, repel the American troops out of New York. Um, 1775, the Continental Congress as well, it endorses committees of safety saying all these colonies should have one. Mm -hmm. These are incredibly important for defense and they broadly term it security measures. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So starting in 1775, it's before independence. That committee of safety looks very different than the one in New York that's operating in uh, 1782 um, by the end of the war. Mm -hmm. um, they mature in their, um, their ability to, first of all, label dissent. I mean, what, what is um, dissenting behavior? That's different in 1775, before you have a constitution, before you have an independence. So the committee of safety play a crucial role in policing uh, the revolution. Policing, Policing the revolution, yeah. Yeah. Trying to control Tories. Yeah. What else are they doing? So disaffection in general is what they'll call it. Yeah. Um, Tory um, is a very specific term. Disaffection is the you're not with us, you're against mm. us. So, I mean, that could be neutrals, uh, religious conscientious objectors like the Shakers and the Quakers. Yeah. That gets very complicated when you look at them. But um, as well as people of equivocal nature, someone that's mm. just not willing to put their name the on. Trimmers. Yeah, the trimmers, perfect mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. um, so other than disaffection, the committees, uh, they're operating when legislatures aren't. So New yeah. York... Yeah, so where do they get their power and authority from? From the legislature. So yeah. from these provincial legislatures, the New York Provincial Congress uh, has got quorum issues. They have too many members. Um, yes. In 1775, 1776, you know, some of the members... Um, uh, are colonels in their local militias. They're serving their forces. They have to be at home. So these legislatures fail to meet quorum a lot of times um, for a variety of reasons, and they devolve into committees of safety mm -hmm. initially. They're appointing themselves as smaller, more efficient committees of safety. So these committees of safety sound pretty pretty mean, Josh. I mean, they're rounding up the baddies or what? I mean, Th that's, what your, that's your words, not uh, mine, right? <laughs> you yeah. said uh, they're mean. No. Um, they're very coercive, I think, that is what you would say. Um, they're using um, intimidation means to uh, target, again, dissent. Um, mm -hmm. So they do everything from opening mail in some of these states to uh, summoning people. Um, but wait a second. We think of the American Revolution as all about liberty and you know fighting for your rights and that sort of thing. Are you telling me that these uh, committees of safety are violating people's individual rights? I, I, I guess I am saying that in the sense that that's not what they're worried about. Um, mm -hmm. They realize that. They're not oblivious to these things, but right. this is the process of the revolution. Revolutions are messy. Mm -hmm. For you know those historians across um, that are focused on European uh, revolutions, Fran French Revolution, Russian Revolution, everyone looks at the American like this is sanitized and this is clean mm -hmm. um, and it's not a real revolution. Some people will say, this is what revolution looks like. I mean, you need to police internal dissent um, and sometimes that means individual liberties. Um, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of press, these committees are definitely interested in, we would say, anything from curbing to trampling um, in a lot of ways. Now, the committees of safety in the American Revolution don't unleash something like a, a terror, a justice-driven uh, terror to uh, to sanitize their revolutionary uh, uh, ideology. What, what do they do in America? Um, so in New York, the perfect example is they talk about awing. The disaffection. That's right from the text. Like they use that word and shock and awe. Yeah. yeah, it's very Hobbesian in that sense. I mean, he talks about that same idea in Leviathan. This idea of awing dissent um, mm -hmm. and how they do that is, I mean, they're not executing people. 
But also, they don't have the apparatus to do a lot of things. The jails are small, so they end up deporting a ton of people from exile. areas. Exile, exactly. You don't want to sign an oath of allegiance. You don't want to swear you know, fealty um, in one way or another. Well, then we're going to move you from an area that we feel is under threat or that you could do some damage. Um, if they can put you in jail, great. But if they don't have enough room in these small county jails especially, uh, they fill up pretty quickly. And instead, they'll ship them to Pennsylvania. New Hampshire is the one that... Um, New York uses a lot. Mm. Um, and you know we have these records of the people being pushed out and the people petitioning back to the committees and saying like, I want to come home. You know, what do I have to do? Mm. Um, so they're using that intimidation technique to correct um, the people that they feel need to be corrected. How does the population feel about these committees of safety over time? Does it change? Is there opinion in which they're they're seen as dangerous or are they, they beloved as you know their saviors or the patriot side or how do they relate to the military? What, what do you got? Okay, so well, let's start off with the how, how do people relate early on? I mean, you have people saying things like, "I prefer committee rule as opposed to anarchy and mob rule." That's probably not a lie in most people's minds. They're willing to get security for this you know trade um, of some individual rights. New York's a perfect example. I mean, you've got enemy occupation from 1776 to 1782, um, and you have this unknown number of disaffected people living amongst them that they don't trust, that they don't like, that they're afraid of, potentially. Um, a lot of the memoirs talk about you don't know who to trust. Your neighbor might smile at you one minute, but not the next. So there is an embracing by some people um, of these committees. Now, those that get captured, obviously, they don't like them. <laughs> They're very negative. Everyone from you know, overt Tories to people like Peter Van Schaak in New York, who's this neutral, using all this you know, great learned experience talking about like the rights of the neutrality and why this is wrong and why you people are hypocrites. Um, but by 1782 in New York, you get petitions from patriots, too, saying... Whoa, yeah. 1782, this is after Yorktown, you know. Why do we need these? Why do we have a state constitution? Yeah. But we've got these, they call them commissions for conspiracies by that point. Um, why do we have these commissions when we have a military, we have a state government, we have a governor, we have a legislature? Why are these yeah. things still operating? So like the Politburo, they're this political arm that are still active in people's yeah. lives. Very active. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, like a, a victory lap, I mean, for lack of a better word. Um, they can operate because they've controlled the state now, um, in New York at least. Um, in some other places it's a little so bit So this different. is a story of success. It, it's a story of success of how the the Americans were successful. Yeah, I think, mm-hmm. I, I think this is necessary to preserving independence. It's yeah. not necessary for the issues of equality, the issues of civil liberties. Did the British have similar types of committees when they took over territory? Did they have committees of safety? What did they? How did the British try to try to deal with dissent? For the most part, the British have the military. Right? These are mostly garrison towns, places like New York um, City, uh, and they don't reinstitute civil authority. And I argue, and I think a number of other people agree, that that's a big mistake. Um, Having the British military being the ones that are issuing loyalty oaths and then punishing dissent builds up a lot of animosity. And you see that in a number of um, scholars' works um, talking about this. They did sometimes have... The British never established a notion that they are part of the people. Exactly. They're seen as occupiers. They're occupiers, and and that loses a lot of people that support them. And even if the committees of safety could be seen as illegitimate, they're still claiming to be part of the community. Very much. And they look at themselves as a bulwark against 
both the British and the American militaries. They say, you know, we're, we're standing in between you and military rule. And they present themselves that way. They have a militia. They, they hire their own men um, locally. Um, they famously, you know, have arguments with military leaders, not Washington, but like Charles Lee. I mean, they, they constantly are butting heads with him about whether or not he supersedes them or they supersede him. So talk about Washington and Lee then. So, I, you know, I know about the famous essays from John Shy in which he looks at, you know, the different visions of Washington and Lee and how they're going to fight the war. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, and there's a part of that, it touches on military authority. Uh, you said they didn't argue with Washington, these committees of safety. How did he, how did he work with them different from a Lee? Um, Washington, I mean, I'm still kind of, this was part of what I did on this fellowship was look at a lot of his letters between different committees and committee leaders. Yeah. And he has um, more of a respect for them. Maybe you know, deep down, I, I can't, I'm not trying to make a window into his soul here, but at least in words, he's saying, you know, it's great if civil authority can work with us and us with you. Mm-hmm. So he recommends people to be arrested. They recommend people to him to arrest. And there's this give and take between mm-hmm. these two sides. And he compliments them and flatters them almost and saying, your role's important. Let's work together on this. So he assumed, it's interesting that he'll use the military for some things, but not for other things. Yeah. And he'll support the civil authority, even if it's something like a committee of safety, right? Which you know is a is a halfway house in some ways. People they're new, exactly. They're new, um, but he sees them as important to stopping things early on, especially stopping trade and information from crossing between patriot-controlled areas to British-controlled territory. So, who are some of the characters that your work is kind of reveals in high relief? You know. Who are the people behind the committees? Who are, oh, the, okay. who are the movers and shakers who are running things? Uh, uh, big yeah. names in history. I mean, that's what yeah. kind of makes it so cool is that these guys have short-term stints on these committees are John Jay, um, George Clinton, um, down in Virginia, Edmund Pendleton, William Livingston in New Jersey. You know, mm-hmm. These aren't um, always minor names. I mean, there's a lot of names that don't come up that often in the historical records, but at the same time... Um, there are a ton of Nathaniel Sacketts. I mean, there's some big names that are connected. Whoa, whoa um, wait a second. You just threw Nathaniel Sackett in there as if anybody knows who that is. Who is Nathaniel Sackett? Well, Nathaniel Sackett, I guess most famously with like Washington, is working with him um, hiring spies. Um, okay. Not as successful and or as well-known as some of the other spy rings of Washington. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, Nathaniel Sackett, he's the one... Uh, where is he? New York. He's yeah. in New York. And I've worked with him a little bit. I'm trying to get um, more understanding of him because of the spies that he had um, in New York. Um, that's one of the projects I was working on here um, is his connection with Washington because it's not as successful because Sackett's guys, from what I can tell at this point at least, they're spying on civilian areas, not so much military um, movements. I've heard more and more the American Revolution over the course of my career referred to as a civil war. I mean, I think it, it has been in the past. It's not new to call it that. You know, it's, I think John Shai called it that. Um, but it's become more and more uh, sort of a, a way people describe it. I remember a talk that David Armitage gave once, and he's, he was talking to everybody to stop talking about revolutions and talk about civil wars. and and as a way to think about how to compare our work to what political scientists are doing or what other histories tell us. Um, how are you engaging or not with this kind of tendency to, to talk about the revolution as a civil war? Um, I think it's definitely a civil war. Um, maybe it's not the same type of civil war as um, maybe perhaps the English civil wars, but it's still a civil war in the sense um, in specific areas. I mean, these are neighbors versus neighbors. I mean, that's a really useful way of, I think Shai is, 
know, he's been calling for this since what, the 70s or something like that maybe, for people to start thinking about the American Revolution in terms of a civil war. And you don't have to think about them and as mutually. There was an early book in the early 70s on violence in the American Revolution. Or no, it's, uh, what is the, the book? The, the essays? There's an essay yeah. on violence in the American Yeah, by, um, by Robert Brown. Yeah, Robert Brown, Richard Brown. Richard, Richard Brown. Brown. Okay, yeah. um, talking about this idea about violence. And I think these two schools of thought, this idea of the vi studying the violence of the American Revolution and this civil war nature of the revolution helps us kind of get a more realistic approach um, to tackling this. And it's not a this or that. It can be both a revolution and a civil war. I mean, I think people... I think all revolutions are civil wars. To some, some degree, yeah. yeah. That's why it's so strange. It's sort of silly to, to try to parse it too much. But I mean... If it, if it helps to understand it. it. It does help to understand it, I think. And the committees are so much a part of, maybe not the violence and executions, like you said, a, a reign of terror way um, kind of way of thinking, but it's it's violence by an intimidation. It's violence by a surveillance kind of way. Um, it's violence in a sense of correcting individuals, and they are specifically geared these committees to looking at local communities. Mm -hmm. Right? They come into town sometimes, um, set up shop, and they're looking for you know known patriots to tell them who's not a known patriot. Mm. Uh, so. What's missing from the study, the dissertation that you're gonna that you're gonna do when you when you move into the book? Um, well, I've already started moving into it a little bit more. Um, this this fellowship was I'm very grateful for and very helpful um, to thinking about Washington and the military in these committees and kind of conceptualizing that aspect. Um, the committees aren't just policing dissent. I mean, they're raising arms. They're trying to regulate the economy to some degree, and these are other functions, necessary governmental functions that they. They take under their wing. So, what state has the strongest committee of safety? And what state has the weakest? Um, uh, from what I've studied, um, New York's got one the longest. I mean, some states are pretty settled in the revolution, you know, quickly. I mean, yeah. I think of Massachusetts after the, you know, yeah, New the Hampshire British are gone out yeah. of Boston. There's no real British presence at all after '76. No, absolutely. I mean, a lot of these states. They look very, their committees operate, but they operate totally differently. So New yeah. Hampshire is a perfect foil to New York yeah. where they, um, they're not looking at dissent. They're looking maybe at criminals at activity sometimes. Robbery is bad, but it's not this political dissent. Do there, are there any involved in sort of moral economy issues or welfare issues that are trying to help poor, displaced folks and that sort of thing? There is some examples in their minutes that they're trying to how successful I'm still setting prices at. setting prices regulations is one of their getting big markets things. to work better getting markets to work better the poor relief is actually one of the ones that New York tries to do before they're kicked out of New York City the New York Committee of Safety mm. brings up all these things so, okay what are we gonna do with the poor that are living in New York how are we gonna mm -hmm. you know stop this when the British come are, are we gonna be able to move these guys out of here so poor relief refugee relief too is another one that they mm -hmm. they discuss so the economic aspect is one that I need to still kind of flush out a lot. Um, I know examples of it, of what they wanted to do. I just don't know how well they were actually able to execute some mm -hmm. of these ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last aspect that um, I'm working on as well now is um, this memory. Why don't we know more about yeah, these well, committees? Let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Okay. I mean, what? So um, I think they're crucial. You've convinced me. Awesome. Uh, you know, I passed your dissertation. <laughs> so uh, that's a good know, first I step. I was convinced at some mm -hmm. level, but why? Uh, why is it a story that uh, is so often uh, not known or understudied? Uh, I mean, one is this whole notion we've talked about, I think, of mm -hmm. the, the French Revolution versus the American Revolution and the people trying to define revolutions in different ways and 
an American, you want to make it into a constitutional struggle mm -hmm. only, and it's sort of nice and clean, and there's no chaos. Um, yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. And if I can, you know, reference a few books here, uh, Citizenship Revolution here, talking about um, you and a number of other people talking about this idea about right after the revolution that there has to be this kind of myth that there was unity um, in the country. Mm -hmm. um, committees are a living, breathing example that there wasn't this sense of unity. Right. Um, and I think a lot of early historians, and again, I'm flushing out this chapter in, in an article, kind of a spinoff article um, right now about this idea of memory, um, but if loyalists represent disunity, then of course committees can't be discussed at length either. So a lot of the early histories, um, Mercy yeah. Otis Warren, one of the famous early yeah. histories, David Ramsey, uh, William Gordon, these early, early histories, guys that lived through the revolution, they'll mention the committees a little bit, yeah. but then you see a slow kind of tickering off um, of the committees. Or if they're mentioned, this stuff that we talked about today isn't talked about at all, this yeah. dissent. So, yeah, I mean, the loyalist literature has really come back into fashion yeah. very strong in the yeah. last decade, for sure. Perfect timing for me. Yeah. <laughs> but, but so the loyalist stuff, and they must do more with committees, um, but just as sort of players in the story. Not players in the story, yeah. I mean, um, so a lot of the more recent books, um, you know, works by like Robert Calhoun um, and others, they Ruma, Ruma, yeah, yeah uh, unnatural rebellion. Um, there's the, the, the loyalist um, diaspora literature. Uh, yeah, Maya um, uh, Jansenov. Mm -hmm. um, uh, a lot of these books, the committees again, they come in a little bit here, but they're they're asking different questions. I mean, to be fair, um, they're not ignoring the committees like some of these early 20th century historians and 19th century historians that ignored the committees. Um, they come up. But it's it's different questions. Um, so my quote, my memory question that I'm trying to ask is, you know, why and where do they do they kind of teeter off? And mm -hmm. there's kind of a lot of different directions that this is spun out into. Looking at fiction and short stories. Um, Are there committees to, of safety in the American Civil War? Yeah, actually, yeah, that name does come up again. I think in the South, I don't know about in the North though. Mm -hmm. But they exist in the American Civil War. They exist in the English Civil War, uh, the English Civil Wars before, right. and the Glorious Revolution. You see those names. Mm -hmm. So it's not the strange. French Revolution. French Revolution. Yeah. Again, mm -hmm. uh, committees of public safety, which I, um, which I mentioned, we mentioned earlier. What are the sources like in the in the American case? That's got to have something to do with it too. Sources for the committees of safety. What, what kind oh, of minutes. Sources exist? Yeah. So a lot of minutes. Um, a lot of petitions to the committees. Um, letters between. Um, the Committee of Safety and other revolutionary leaders, um, both in the state, out of the state, military people like Washington and Lee. Um, a lot of these are, um, yeah, the minutes are sometimes really boring and dry, and I think that's part of the reason why people, you know, weren't initially interested, because they might say, you know, Doug Bradburn appeared before the Committee of Safety, Wait a second. offered an oath of allegiance, um, <laughs> refused to tender it. And it doesn't really give the accused a, a real opportunity to speak, not in the minutes at least. Mm. Um, sometimes if it's really inflammatory, they'll uh, include a direct quote. But um, I think a lot of historians have just been, eh, you know, this isn't interesting because they were looking for something else in those minutes. So who's publishing this book, Canale? Um, well, I mean, when are we going to get to read this I'm, great work? I'm, I'm hoping soon. I, I've had some conversations with uh, Cornell University Pet Press, mm, so I'm, yeah. I'm interested in working with them. They've been 
very um, helpful um, and encouraging. Uh, I think they saw me talk at a uh, conference and just said, you know, it's a very exciting topic. And it seems very timely right now. I mean, yeah. we've had a lot of uh, revolutionary times all over the world, some failing revolutions, and, you know, this whole question of how you secure uh, a society Security. in the midst of chaos exactly. is, uh, is, is a big one. Yeah, when you have dissent within your own population. I think that's why people like it to this project. You know, when I go to conferences, people ask like, oh, so have you thought about, you know, the NSA or have you thought about, you know, and it's like, no, that never struck me as something. You work for the CIA already. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, uh, China. You're very much involved in teaching in China. Yeah, this is Great opportunity, a seamless transition. From let's talk. Well, well, let's talk about this because this was something you started. I think when were you still a graduate student? At yeah, my, my last year. So you're an no, incredibly entrepreneurial year. type, is the term that we like <laughs> to hear. Uh, uh, talk a little bit about what what kind of teaching you're doing in China. Um. So when I was a grad student, I think I started in 2014, uh, and I graduated. I think the next the next year. Um, Years are getting. Um, you defended your dissertation in, in the spring of 2014. In spring, okay, so that same semester. I was there. That, yeah, thank you. <laughs> you were there too. I, think. I was there. Yeah, it's just a uh, feels like forever now. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was a rainy day. Do you remember that? <laughs> um, but that spring, as I was finishing, kind of like proofing my chapters before you know final submission in May in February. Um, I started this class in China, um, and it's through Binghamton University, um, where uh, I was a PhD candidate, and it's a great opportunity. I mean, it's fabulous. Um, it's called the University Readiness Program, and it sends professors and one graduate student. <laughs> <laughs> Very grateful for that opportunity um, to China to commence the semester there, to actually um, juniors, seniors, and I think they might even start a year younger with like a writing program to sophomores. Mm -hmm. um, and these are kids that are highly advanced that want to come and study in Western countries. Mm -hmm. Most want to come to the U.S., um, but um, some Australia and England, et cetera, mm -hmm. other English-speaking countries. And this is to get them college credit hours, but more importantly, to get them acclimated to an entirely different education system. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, in China, it's, you know, the teacher is got the, the complete knowledge. There is nothing that the teacher does not know, and you just you just soak it all in. You just write down everything well, he or she says. That's how the seminars with you were. <laughs> we just we just soaked it all in, just a sponge, yeah, right? right? Isn't that what you used to say about us? I know that you took a lot from <laughs> yeah, it. Yes, so that's like a sponge. That, I don't know if it was me knowing everything, for sure. So, uh, so you're at, uh, at the, the name of the high school is Zhenjiang? Yeah, Zhenjiang. Zhenjiang High School yeah. in the Jinsu province. Jinsu province, uh, Jinjiang High School in China. Yes, yeah. So you, you do that. Um, is that the only one or are there no. other programs? No. Um, so I've taught there um, mm -hmm. and I've also taught at Beijing New Oriental School, mm -hmm. um, which was a really cool experience because that one I got to teach American history through comic books, uh, um, which is... Uh, they have a comic book, American, they call it the American Comic Book Club, and I am currently the mo faculty moderator of that. Is that right? Yeah. American Comic Book Club. The American Comic Book Club. And I mean, when I taught that course, they had this like ceremony, and they asked me like, will you be our moderator and speak to our group every once in a while? So that's amazing. Um, yeah, it was very. Talk about that class. How do you teach American history with comic books? Um, you know, you started with Superman, or you started in the thirties, or I actually started in like the eighteen seventies. Really, yeah. the yellow guy, the yellow, uh, the yellow kid. Yeah, yellow we, we kid. used that a little bit. I try to stay away from comic strips, but that's considered one of the precursors. Um, mm -hmm. 
And um, The Adventures of Obadiah Oldbuck um, is a Swedish comic book, considered the first actual comic book that was translated into English. Really? Yeah, it's uh, very, you know... Like Minnesota or something? Where was this? No, like I think in Sweden, yeah. Oh, in Sweden? Yeah, and then it was was brought here and translated here. Oh. Um, And it's... It's a very interesting story about this guy who's in love with this woman, and he's just basically chases after, and everything that can go wrong goes wrong. Very dark, dark humor, um, and yeah. but it gives you a sense it's of you know, Swedish, yeah, right? gender roles and, <laughs> and and yeah, European yeah. humor, I guess. Yeah. So we start there, and then we kind of jump into the 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 twentieth century, nineteen hundreds, mm-hmm. with things like Superman. So. Understanding that period through the comics that were produced there, yeah. as opposed to reading something about World it's War. It's got to be a lot more popular than trying to do early American history in China. It was, yeah, incredibly popular, but it's super tough too. And yeah. that was something I didn't quite get because I mean, you read like a 1920s comic book, and they use words like "Hey Mac," where's the uh, you know the where are the cool cats at, you know things like that. <laughs> and you know they're like, "Why are they looking for cats?" You know, and it's yeah. like, "Oh yeah, I forgot this Slime. language is this yeah." Slime, yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of slang. and So you're preparing these Chinese students to come over and be able to talk to people from the 20s. Yes, exactly. That's you, great. You That's going to work out really current well. Current 20s <laughs> lingo <laughs> and yeah. insults, yeah. <laughs> They're very prepared when coming. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great... What, what do they respond to most? What are some of the comics that you, you know, you're surprised at? Their reaction, or just in general, you just you knew this would be a really enthusiastic one. I had no idea it was going to be this successful, to be honest. Um, I use comics when I teach here in the U.S. Every once in a while, modern you know history class, mm-hmm. um, have my students, and that usually goes over fairly well. And I used it once or twice the first year I was teaching in China, and I had a number of students tell me like, "Oh, I love reading new comics." Mm-hmm. So then I thought. You know, I'm teaching this this course anyway at Lemoyne um, once, so I was like, why don't we just try it here and see what happens? Yeah. Um, and it was phenomenal, uh, phenomenal experience. I mean, they really liked it, and it was. So, what was the things? So, we read a lot of these public domain, just terrible comics um, in this class. Um, Cold War era is, is a major theme in comic books. Yeah. Um, you know, gender, race, class, uh, espionage, these types of things, and I think that was probably well, the ideologies the of the Cold War, huge, the communism and. And they you know, come through freedom. so loud. Yeah. I mean, there's there's very overt. Yeah, there's overt ones where the enemies are communists, but there's a very subtle ones too about like you know, what's the subtle. traditional. <laughs> yeah, which aren't subtle. <laughs> what are the, the traditional gender rules? Though, right. I mean, this is uh, propaganda that they're getting all the time. Yeah. So I mean, I think that you know, a lot of students, you know, can sense, you know, w- what's this idea and where is this going and yeah. you know who who's to benefit from these. And we their English doesn't have to be perfect to get the stories. Either. Right. Yeah. And they'll have a TA for these courses too mm-hmm. that can walk them through because we read everything and when we read a comic book we read the advertisements yeah. to the products of the air so you'll have like um you know atomic uh, atomicized uh, tomato seeds you know in this comic selling it down at walgreens buy your atomic energy uh, oh, radiated tomato crazy. seeds so we talk about that for yeah. a second you know yeah. this is the wonder yeah. not drug but <laughs> wonder scientific process so i'm no comic book expert Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> I feel that's a shock to you. you know? I would have totally guessed that. <laughs> but, I mean, so nowadays, of course, we have all the movies, too, that mm-hmm. go with the comic books. And the movies have, have also moved along with the time. So the Civil War, for mm-hmm. instance, this summer is hot. Um, you've had two Civil Wars, really, right? You have the break, you have the, the whole fight between uh, Batman and Superman. But yep. then you have on the other side, you've got the Civil War between 
Captain yeah, the, America and Iron, Iron Man, Man and yeah. their minions. Exactly. I mean, so this these comics started coming out in like what the late when I, 90s? No, the Civil After War ones. 2001. So these are post 2000. Yes. These yeah. are post 9/11. Yeah. When uh, I was an undergrad. Trends. Yeah. Because it's a lot so of. You get that far? I mean, is that how far you take? We it? talk about yeah. We'll talk about. Um, and do you show Civil movies War. too? Then or? I don't actually show the movies in the class. It, for in the China class, it's super hard um, to show yeah. any types of clips. My TA over there has to get like a VPN and do a whole lot of other things to do video clips. So we've done a yeah. few things, but um, when I'm here, I've taught in stateside. Um, I've taught the comic class a few times, and yeah, we do show some clips from movies because it's different. You got Iron Man in the comic books. His enemy is Vietnam because this is during the Vietnam War. Mm. Comic in Iron Man the first movie, his enemy is Middle Eastern. It's probably more likely Afghani, I believe. But um, it's totally different. I mean, this is a different period talking to a different audience yeah. it's not South Vietnam anymore yeah, yeah. radiation Spider-Man doesn't get his powers from radiated spiders like he did in 1963 he gets it from like genetic mutations and uh, genetic engineering oh, interesting DNA yeah. so. fascinating but that's the type of things we think about in this class yeah. everything from you know gender roles to race to enemies and patriotism we talk a lot of theories so. That's, that's that's it's really uh, I think it's a great class and a great way to do it and I, I think I love the idea of doing it you know in China too I mean so you do this currently at, at uh, Jefferson Community College I teach that there too yes uh, so tell me a little bit about Jefferson Community College what is it what, as an institution you've only been there a semester yes yeah um, you've been a visiting professor at Lemoyne. Mm -hmm. And now you're at Jefferson. Talk a little bit about the types of students who go there, where it is. So Jefferson is in what's actually upstate New York, uh, further north than oh. where I'm from, central New so York. You don't, Binghamton you don't consider upstate. because Southern tier. It's, it's the lower third, what is it, the third? Yeah. The what low, is it called? The oh, lower I'm not, tier of upstate New yeah. York. Yeah. So Binghamton's southern tier, then central New southern York tier. is like yeah. Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse. Um, and then further north is upstate by, you know, that definition, I guess. Everyone has a different idea well, where it's from begins. Manhattan, upstate. Everything is, is Yonkers is upstate, yeah. So this, I've been corrected several times that this is really upstate and not where I'm from. But, um, oh, okay, people up there. You know, my roommate in um, undergrad was from up there, and he used to get mad when he'd hear Someone refer to Syracuse as uh, upstate. But do they like Canada up there, or do they not like Canada? Oh, I, yeah, I, Kingston I think is the They're closest. Yeah, is very close by. Do people in Buffalo like Canadians. Um, I assume so. I mean, they go there to buy beer when they're eighteen, <laughs> I think. So. Yeah, the drinking age is younger. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and then the Canadians come and watch the Bills. <laughs> and then they come over and that's watch good. the Bills. Um, All right, so Jefferson Community College is in Watertown, New Watertown. York, right, right near Sackets Harbor. How long um, has it been there? Um, it is uh, 20th century. I'm trying to think now. Uh, I'm, I'm bad at dates. We just went through oh, this yeah, a second ago. Yeah. Like historian. <laughs> um, good. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's uh, I think it's like 1940s or 1940s. Well, when we edit the podcast, yeah. we'll get the right date in there for you. That's good. So, but it's a part of the SUNY system. Yes, it is. It's a public yeah. school. Yep. And what kind of population does it serve? Um, it serves the local community, but nearby is Fort Drum. So, I mean, you have oh, okay. a lot of... Mm -hmm. uh, veterans, um, current soldiers, mm -hmm. uh, and as well as their families. Mm -hmm. And I think, like most community college, I'm not an expert, but the, it ranges from traditional to you know much older, um, second career people as well. Yeah. And it makes the classroom just such a lively, awesome space because you have people that have had multiple jobs or served in multiple countries, you know, abroad, mm -hmm. and they're able to bring in that experience yeah. um, to the classroom to people that are just finishing high school. Yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, it's yeah, very that's unique. a great mix. So, oh, it's great. So what do you teach there? Um, this past spring, 
I taught both halves of the U.S. History Survey and uh, Western Civilization because it was uh, it was a kind of quick hire. They had someone going on sabbatical, and I got picked up as a tenure track um, line to fill in for him. So next fall, I'll be doing um, mostly U.S. History there in the comic book course um, in specifically. Um, that's going to be a popular one, I think. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping. Are you going to do an online version of that ever, or what do you think? Um, I would love to. I think it, it lends itself very easily because I... When did you start doing that? Literally, like, one year before this, yeah. I, I've taught it three times. I don't remember you talking about this at Binghamton. No, it was never... I, um, my department chair at Lemoyne... Who Le Moine, else does this? I'm sure other people do this. I haven't come across someone that does what I'm doing right. by using the that decade's comics. Yeah. I've seen people teach... Use a lot, yeah. Comic books, especially yeah. English classes, they use graphic novels all the time. Binghamton had someone that taught it in yeah. the English department, I believe. Yeah. Um, but it's a very different lens, and we're asking different questions of the material. So I think students are that come in. great founding father comic books? There are some. Um, Con, well, My now, son tells me there's a Deadpool issue where he goes back and kills all the zombie founding fathers. That I have, that I can't speak to. Like they're zombies. They <laughs> they're zombies. Life, but yeah. It's like George Washington's zombie, and Deadpool kills him. So, because he's right in life. Yeah, I guess he's bad then. But he's, he's bad. Yeah, yeah he's so, a bad guy. So he wouldn't want it that way. He wouldn't want to live as a zombie. Maybe he cannot tell a lie. Yeah, I guess you're right. He wouldn't live as a zombie. Yeah, well, that's really cool. So there are a lot of so historical you'll teach that, you'll teach the big surveys. Yeah, and I'll teach the big surveys and then start doing some other electives. I'll, yeah. I'll kind of work in them. I mean, I'd love to teach an early American one at some point um, there. I think that'd be really, a lot of the students are really interested in the early period. Revolution. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Revolution. Oh. Um, a lot of the Why? students. Um, I think a lot of people like, in general, I mean, you must have come across this in Binghamton, they like military history um, mm -hmm. in general. And there's just a kind of an affinity to the War of 1812 because there was a battle up there. The War of 1812, there. really? Yeah. Of there's a battle. To study. There's goodness. a battle at Sackets Harbor. Um, yeah. You which know is Washington's not alive during that war. I, I know he's it not alive. It would have been a lot different. It would have been, it would have been a lot different. Yeah, that's exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. That's cool. They wouldn't have burned Washington. <laughs> well, that's true. It wouldn't have been there either. Well, Maybe would have. I don't know. But at any rate, he would have been old. We can do a whole counterfactual history when we explain how he would have been victorious. So one of the things we have in the library is these busts in the reading room. Mm. And one of the things I, I, I should be asking my podcasters more often is, what bust would you put in there that we don't have? Ooh, what bust would we not have? Oh, yeah. oh, oh, man. What are we missing? I thought so right now, for the people at home, uh, keeping score at home, we have uh, 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 Benjamin Franklin. We have Alexander Hamilton, and then the first four presidents, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and Madison. And they uh, sit in the great Karen Bookwell Wright reading room, overlooking, watching the researchers to keep them in, in line. And, uh, and you can go on our virtual tour online and take a look at them. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I, 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 it was so, you know, there's always room for more busts. And who would you have, have put up there? Well, in how many years is it okay to get a founding director one, right? Well, <laughs> kissing up to the founding director is is a great way to go. I don't no, think that's gonna happen. Um, if I was gonna do an early American one, um, yeah, trying to think of somebody like very um, random. I mean, you did your committee's safety study. Who do you who do we need to have there? Have there? 
Uh, I mean, if you're going to go committees of safety, I would say somebody like John Jay. John I mean, he's Jay. very, very important yeah. um, <laughs> in the committees. He's very important. Well, not only in the, in the committees, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. Treaty of Paris. Supreme Court Justice. Yeah. So, I mean, um, he's ambassador in France during the French Revolution, right, I think. Well, what about somebody other than Jay? Because he's been so, so Okay. So, um, someone other than Jay. And it can be very random, too? Yeah. Well, I guess. Okay, you so, have to justify it. This has got to go in our collection of worthies here. All right. So, non-founding father, necessarily. Yeah. Somebody that founding I've been mother? founding mother. Oh, geez. Um, yeah, so uh, that wasn't fifty percent of the audience. <laughs> nah, I thought we were just speaking generally. Um, I am generally. Women are people too, Canelli. I, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. One of the other early people that I study a lot. Uh, I mean, I mentioned Livingston, um, George Clinton. I mean, these guys are. You got to justify kind, this as a bust. Of, you want George Clinton up there, the uh, the governor of New York. And uh, vice president. Yeah, and he was in charge of appointing the committee, some of the later committees. Friend of George Washington. Yeah, friend of George Washington. Well, how about something then completely that people out there in listening land haven't heard of? And how about uh, Enoch Crosby? Okay, uh, Enoch Crosby. Enoch so Crosby. this guy. Uh, I've never been one of those historians that feels like you know somebody that you've studied. I mean, a lot of people that do biographies, they feel like they really know this person. Mm -hmm. They, you yeah. know, eat and sleep and they think about this person at their dinner table. Um, this guy and I have spent so much time together in the past <laughs> several months. He's a spy that works for the committees mm -hmm. that's hired. He's maybe, maybe not the spy who's the influence for James Fenimore Cooper's the spy. Ah, um, yeah. And Jay and Cooper were friends. Um, and Cooper m most likely learned about real spy activities from Jay, from Jay's experience. That's why Jay was the first one I came up with. From Jay's experience on and these Jay committees. Jay couldn't keep a secret or what? He wouldn't give his name. Um, he wouldn't give his name. And he kind of spoke about the, the trials spy. and tri tribulations of, of the spies mm -hmm. to Cooper. And then Cooper writes this, you know, great book, um, The Spy, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. I believe at the time spying was still considered very dishonorable um, and oh, he yeah, makes absolutely. it yeah. you know this is a romanticized character and this right. is somebody that we, he is the epitome of him he's him. the hero he's the epitome of virtue heroic. and self-sacrifice heroic giving up everything he's got actually a part giving with Washington at the end identity. Yeah. he has a part with Washington where Washington are you going to write money. the book on Crosby? I'm trying to now um, actually oh, really? I've been oh That's yeah this project. is this is yeah. I've I don't been think doing I some. Knew this. Do I know no, this? this is new. Um, this is all new. Um, and I've been chasing this guy's life you after the revolution. You obviously know Alan Taylor's William Cooper's. Yes. Town, right? Yeah. So you could do a similar thing. You could play off the spy with Crosby. To be honest, it's it's leaning a little bit closer to Al Young, Shoemaker, and the Tea Party because mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. he's his story and his involvement. So it's about his story and then about the memory of his. Story. In the memory, yeah, exactly. Oh, right. His experience and then afterwards, because like. Many of the civil American Revolution veterans by like the 1820s, they they're old. They're in their 80s. They all of a sudden become popular again. Yeah. Um, and mm -hmm. Crosby's one of these guys that all of a sudden they can't get enough. He gets invited back to New York. He gets his portrait made. Mm. He gets invited to a parade or two. Yeah, it's the portrait of the spy. Is it a golden spy? I'm not 100 percent sure, but I did contact um, our uh, uh, curators here, and they're going to put me in contact with the Smithsonian, where it's down in the National Portrait Gallery. Ah, Enoch Crosby's. Yeah. So I was able to find out when it was made, and I was able to find out on my own who commissioned it. But I want to know a little bit more about uh, whatever whatever the Smithsonian knows if they're out there listening i'd love to know as well <laughs> that's fantastic josh yeah. it's a great project um that, that's really really yeah neat. it's it's been uh, fun well get on it i mean you got another book to finish you could do a graphic novel of the Enoch crosby story uh, absolutely absolutely and then i can teach that one in china <laughs> all right well it's been a pleasure to have you here and uh 
you've been a great fellow around the uh, the place. I know you've been helping out the staff a lot and helping out people with computer problems <laughs> and doing God knows what. Hopefully, you've actually got some work done. I have, yeah. Got out one article draft mm-hmm. for um, review, and then this stuff on Crosby I've been researching as, lo- as well as some of the uh, um, – uh, stuff with the committees in Washington, et cetera. So it's been a great time. I can't speak enough highly about it here. We look forward to having you back sometime soon, Josh. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.